This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. You can find a complete transcript of this episode over on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, or you can just check your show notes. Hello, friends. Uh, Today is the first of two retrospective episodes uh, to end off Reading Women's series on air. And so... Uh, the last episode will be our episode retrospective, which will go up on December 15th. In the meantime, we will have a lot of different author interviews uh, that Joss and I have done. And so very excited to share those with you. But today we're actually going to be taking a look back at past episodes. So you will notice that the episodes are varying quality, you might say. And so I thought I would talk a little bit about how our author interviews came to be. Because if you've been here from the beginning, you may remember that our podcast was every other week for a long time. And then for our first season, we just had those. And then we went to author interviews occasionally in 2017 and 2018. And I think around 2019 is when we became an every week podcast with author interviews when we didn't have our main episodes. So how did, how did we get there? So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about some of our different interviews um, that stood out for various reasons. Um, But I want to say a huge thank you to all of the authors who have come on the podcast over the years. I am always just blown away by the women who have come on the podcast and talked about books, whether that be guests on a regular episode or author interviews. I am just so grateful for everyone who has put in the work and um, the effort into making Reading Women what it is. Uh, But we were early on in our 2017 season, and for our second interview, we booked an unknown author. Um, with a a book with a very small publicity budget called Pachinko. And we booked Minjin Lee to come on the podcast. I am so, so grateful for Minjin Lee for coming on the podcast because at the end of the interview, after we stopped recording, she said, thank you for having me on your podcast. You know, podcasts like yours are tastemakers and and you really make a difference. And, you know, at the time we were very small, And the fact that she said that, she took the time to thank us and was just so gracious. It meant the world to us, tiny podcasters who just had started this as as a fun hobby to 
you know, have something to do together as friends. And um, we never forgot that. And we love her and her work. And I'm so excited for her next book. I'm not sure if it's still titled American Hagwon, but I hope I am excited to listen to it. But I wanted to feature an excerpt from this this interview because one, you can hear the audio changes one again. I am so sorry about the various audio qualities of these interviews, but also we talk about the first line of the book, Pachinko, and what it, you know, what it meant to Minjin Lee writing it and like the thought process behind her writing it. And it was just a beautiful moment. And I remember that interview one as one of our early interviews so distinctly because it informs so much of what we did later. And uh, I don't know if Minjin Lee is listening at all, but I just want to say thank you for your support so early on. And um, while Minjin Lee's book Pachinko did not have much of a marketing budget when it first came out, it did go on to get uh, become a finalist for the National Book Award. And Minjin Lee, at least in bookish circles, became a household name. And she is absolutely wonderful. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And our first question to Minjin Lee uh, was about the first line of her novel, History has failed us, but no matter. And we asked, what were the origins of that epic first line? Um, so here is a little snippet from our conversation with Minjin Lee. Oh, well, I really like this question because the sentence sort of came to my brain fully formed. And as you can tell, I'm 48. I've produced two whole books, so clearly writing does not come easily to me. So whenever a sentence comes to me fully formed, I'm so grateful. And it essentially is the thesis of my book, which is that I believe that the history is almost like a character, and it informs each one of us, and it affects each one of us. And lately... Um, you know, I think as Americans, we can feel like, oh, has history supported us or failed us? And I think it's something that people have to sort of think about in terms of the political context in which we live. So I write about Koreans. My first book was about Koreans in America. My second book is about Koreans in Japan. And the history of Koreans in the past 19th and 20th century is a really tragic one in many ways, um, at least in the history books. However, when I spoke to the Koreans in Japan, they didn't feel that they were limited just by history. They felt like they were adapting around it. And I found that their resilience and their surviving skills to be so impressive that I actually had to revise an entire manuscript and write the current book, and which really focuses on one family's response to the history um, of their nation and their community. It's funny because I think most of the times we think of history as being something really dry or boring, but I guess for me what I realize is that history is constantly affecting us. Like, for example, like yesterday, the South Korean president was impeached. First woman president that Korea ever had, South Korea ever had, was impeached yesterday. 
And now that she doesn't have immunity affecting her, she's going to face prosecution charges of bribery, and she'll probably be put into jail. And I'm only mentioning this because for me as a novelist, that part is kind of like, yes, history happened. However, I'm more interested in the fact that two people actually died during the protest yesterday. They actually were protesting on her behalf and supporting her, and they just passed out because it was too exciting for them. And for me, I'm not, I think that the leaders of history are interesting and there's a lot of airtime given to them. I'm more interested in people like you and me and our responses to what happens every single day and what makes us act or not act. And also what our central concerns are on a day-to-day basis, which are not necessarily headlines. Oh my goodness. Isn't Minjin Lee just fabulous? I love listening to that interview and you can go listen to the full interview uh, via the link in our show notes. Uh, We've also gone back and our older interviews that I mentioned today that didn't have transcripts, we've gone back and added transcripts for those or are currently in the process of adding those transcripts because I want to make sure those were available as well. And so uh, fast forward to 2018, we went to a panel with Lisa Cross-Smith, and she is an author where her debut came out from Hub City Press. Now, Hub City Press is a personal favorite of mine as I lived about 30 to 40 minutes south of them uh, for several years, and I love their work, uh, especially as an Appalachian person, seeing a Appalachian press, seeing a Southern press do such great work has is, is been incredibly important to me. And so I really love that this book, and I love the press it comes from, and Lisa Cross-Smith is just a wonderful person to chat with. On panels, she just shines as like this star, this vivacious person with so much to say and such great storytelling chops. Loved her book, Whiskey and Ribbons. And I will say, as someone who came from a literary background, I was skeptical of romance. I admit it. I admit it. I was. I was wrong. I will say here, I was completely wrong. And this is one of the books that convinced me just to get over myself. (laughs) Um, So in this interview, we are talking to Lisa Cross-Smith about Whiskey and Ribbons, her debut, which is set in contemporary Louisville, which is in Western Kentucky. Now, my family is from uh, Southeast Ohio, uh, northeast and eastern Kentucky. So, uh, you know, it's a similar state, southern, but it's a kind of a different vibe, which is fine. Uh, but I really appreciated this book because it featured southern characters in such a beautiful way. And as in the excerpt you're about to listen to, Lisa Cross Smith talks about the importance for her representing um, Black people in the South, uh, Black Kentuckians who are there in Louisville doing the thing, and that how that representation was really important to her. And I really appreciate her voice on this. And she's continued to do that throughout the rest of her books. She now has two other titles out from Grand Central Publishing. And so uh, she has just done so well. And I love her brand of, as she says, literary romance. Uh, I have become a huge fan of her work. And I will say the audio of Whiskey and Ribbons is nine-year perfection. Uh, and so I cannot recommend this book enough. And I love listening back to this interview because it just reminded me of the wealth that is 
Appalachian literature, that is Southern literature, that is all of these things, and the great work that is coming out of, you know, regional areas, air quotes, regional areas of the United States. And I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for authors like Lisa Cross Smith, who spent the time talking about their work and wanting to see their regions represented in literature. So here is our conversation with Lisa Cross Smith. You're published with Hub City Writers, which is just north of me. And it was so exciting to see a local indie press and have a book there and uh, to connect with. So how did you find out about Hub City Writers and how did you get Whiskey and Ribbons published with them? Yeah, it was really, really a dream come true to be published by a press that loves, publishes, and is, you know, so so in love with the South. So I would say that they just love the South. They love Southern fiction. That's what they're doing. Like they're not at all trying to get around that. They're not trying to do that in a sneaky way. Like they're very straightforward. Like we are publishing Southern fiction we are looking for Southern fiction. And since I love the, the, the I mean, I just love the South. My family's from Alabama. We're from Kentucky. And so, um, so that was really important to me that, that I could connect with a publisher that, that was interested in Southern fiction, but not interested in the grotesque or not interested in just using the South as a joke, which is um, so often done. Yeah. I I actually don't know. I, I think the connection there was a writer friend of mine that I've connected with online, I think had posted one of my short stories, Meg Reed, who is now the director of Hub City. She was not at the time, but she soon, soon after bought my book. It was, um, she became the director. Yeah. I think that she read one of my short stories. I believe that she reached out to both me and my agent around the same time. And it, it kind of went pretty quickly from there, but, um, it was definitely because Meg had read my shorter work. I do believe someone actually said to me, I never really thought about black people living in, living in Kentucky. You know, <laughs> like that's just wild. It's, it's wild to me, you know, cause of course I've lived here my whole life, but it's wild to me that some people, yeah, when you say Kentucky, they just see one thing. If you say Tennessee, they just picture one thing or Mississippi or, you know, any of those States, they just are picturing one thing. It's really kind of hard for them to picture picture, oh, people are just living there, hanging out. We got Target, Starbucks. <laughs> I don't think that they see it like that. So it's pretty, it, it is pretty wild to have to sort of start there when I talk to people. Like I'm from Kentucky and we have water and it tastes really good. And, <laughs> and to have to start there is just, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. So now we've had an interview with Minjin Lee from 2017, uh, an interview with Lisa Cross Smith from 2018. And now we're going to fast forward to 2019 to our chat with our Reading Women Award for Fiction winner from that year, Carolina de Robertis, who wrote Cantoras. I remember we just couldn't stop gushing about it. And I remember reading it, and I was just so devastated uh, by how wonderful it was in that best way possible kind of way. And talking with Carolina, she was just so generous, so kind. Uh, and gracious and just a, a wonderful person to talk to. And so during our conversation, I asked her about queer history and how oftentimes our history uh, of queer communities is very American-centric, but there are queer movements happening all around the world. And she had so many wonderful things to say about that, which I've included here. 
And, you know, when I was reading this book, I forget when it is that it's mentioned, but uh, you're reading along in this story and you're engrossed and all of a sudden they mention uh, Stonewall. And I, and I think when we think about LGBTQ plus history, we think about America and we're very American centric, especially here. Uh, but in reality, there are queer histories all over the world that we don't really think about or know about. Was that something that you wanted to push back against when you were writing this story? Yes, that is absolutely something I wanted to, if not push at, push push back against, at least kind of pry open a little, expand and explore. Because if you look at Uruguay, for example, you know, the dictatorship began in the early 70s. People were bell-bottomed and dreaming of revolution and in parallel ways to Europe and the United States. But then it was almost as if a curtain fell. You know, there was no internet. There was an incredibly intense amount of control over what was in newspapers and television and what came in from outside the country. So people inside Uruguay were almost in like sort of a mental prison in terms of not hearing about movements going on in other countries at all. So late 70s, early 80s, you know, here in the United States, people already knew about Stonewall. You know, there was the black power movement and feminist consciousness raising and gay rights was, you know, was an explosively powerful movement in that time. And Uruguay not only didn't have that, but didn't even have access to knowing that it had happened. And that's an important story, too, because Uruguay went from being such a closed country in those ways to becoming the second country in Latin America to legalize gay marriage in 2013 and to do it before the United States. Right. So I'm also wanting to push back against this idea that we Latin Americans are more backwards. Right. And that the only way that we'll get something like a gay rights movement is by importing it from somewhere else. That's also a flattening of the story. That said, I do think that gay rights has always thrived on international exchange. So hearing about Stonewall in other countries has been really meaningful to uh, movements and queer people on the ground. And I know that the legalization of, of gay marriage in, uh, in Uruguay was in part very much fueled by watching what was happening in the U.S. and other countries. So and, and drawing inspiration from the activists in other places. So that international cross-fertilization I wanted to also portray. So after Contoras wins the Reading One Award for Fiction, at the end of 2018, we turn the corner and head right into the pandemic. Now, this changed the way that I booked interviews in that I looked for books that might not be getting the attention that they you know, would have otherwise with you know, longer, no longer doing in-person events. But I will say it also made my ability to record with folks a lot easier because people were more used to doing things virtually as the year continued. Um, but the next interview um, today that I want to share with you is one that is incredibly personal to me. As many of you know, I have a disabling chronic illness. I'm a disabled person and my condition deteriorates over time. And so having started this podcast and started planning this podcast when I was 25 years old, I've, I've watched my condition progress over the course of time. And so as the ableist language greatly increased during the, particularly during the beginning of the pandemic, when people were talking about resources and who was going to get what resources and disabled people not being considered a high priority for life-saving resources, it, it was incredibly devastating. And personally, I, I, I did not know what to do. I did not know how to move forward. And every day was just a new challenge. 
One of the great shining lights of that year was my conversation with Alice Wong, who is a disability rights advocate and activist, and also the founder of the Disability Visibility Project. And the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, happened in 2020. And so she had a anthology coming out called Disability Visibility. And as soon as I heard about it, I knew I wanted to talk to her. And Alice Wong has a podcast uh, herself. And so I was so thrilled to be able to talk to her. But also, I never felt seen as a disabled person than I did in that conversation. Alice Wong is such an incredible advocate for the disability community. And she mentions uh, later in the interview that she wanted to include disabled people every step of the way for this project. And I greatly appreciated that. I'll quit gushing, as I am wont to do, but um, here is my conversation with Alice Wong. The first question I had for you today is about about the book. So the title of the book, Disability Visibility, shares the name with your Disability Visibility Project, uh, which you founded. So what is that project and how did it come to be? Thank you for asking. Uh, so the Disability Visibility Project started in 2014. And, you know, it's interesting that this, the timing of our conversation, because we're about to approach the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act this July. And I started the project actually as a one-year oral history campaign to record stories by disabled people in the lead-up to the 25th anniversary of the ADA in 2015, July 26th. So at that time, you know, I think that there were a lot of disability organizations getting ready to celebrate and, you know, do something to mark this occasion. And I was just, you know, one person. I just, you know, wanted to myself, like, what can I do? What's, what's my contribution? And, you know, one thing that's always bothered me is that you know, number one, we don't see enough stories about disabled people by disabled people. And also, I don't think there's enough uh, disability history that's known by the general public. And I really wanted to have an effort to, to think about disability history now, not just, you know, way back when, you know. And I think, you know, all of us are creating history every day, you know, it's not just about these iconic figures or, you know, super famous people or big accomplishments. So I formed a community partnership with StoryCorps, which is an oral history nonprofit. It just started, like, interviewing amazing friends of mine, you know, people that I thought are super cool and just wanted a chance to, you know, share a story with them. And I was going to use social media. And I wanted just to encourage, like, to people all over. And it kind of snowballed. So starting in 2014, this project was just going to be a one-year, you know, collecting stories. And it really resonated. You know, people, I think, have a hunger to tell their own stories. And uh, StoryCorps has a relationship with the Library of Congress. So each participant has the option 
to do hard drive through story at the Library of Congress. So that to me is really exciting too, is that not just that we're telling our stories, but we're creating a body of work that's going to be, you know, there forever for future generations and that can be accessed by the public. So as of 2020, we have approximately a little bit over 140 oral histories. And in addition to oral histories, we are an online community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media culture through a podcast, through blog posts, Twitter chats, get up, all kinds of ways. Oh, that's that's really fabulous. And, you know, I, I really love the title of Disability Visibility because, you know, like you say in the very first paragraph of your introduction, that you don't realize what's 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 missing because you don't see it. And you don't even realize that you're thirsting and, and for your own types of stories until you until you read them. And that's something that I definitely felt when reading this collection. And I felt seen in a lot of ways that I had, I had really never read essays like these before. And it just made me realize about how much that was something that I needed to see. And I really love that the idea that there's even more oral histories from, from your disability visibility project as well. Thank you for that. And I feel like, uh, you know, being seen is not always, it doesn't mean that it has to be a bigger image. You know, I think some people feel like, you know, being seen means you need a literal, exact same representation. And I feel like that's, you know, partially true. But I also think that being seen is also about this kind of similar lived experience. And I think people with disabilities, they range as such different types. You know, there's such diversity in the types of disabilities and just the ways people live. But I think something, you know, there's a lot of commonality in terms of just the, you know, living with a different way of being and how that really does challenge the status quo. And I really do hope that all kinds of people with disabilities, whether they have invisible disabilities or you know, all kinds that are just, you know, whether they read somebody that's in the book that with or without their exact, you know, same diagnosis or the same kind of disability, I hope they do find something there for them. So at the end of 2020, uh, Joss started joining me for interviews, of course, would later go on and do a lot of interviews on her own in 2021. Uh, But one of our last interviews together was uh, talking to Talia Hibbert, who is the author of uh, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, Take a Hint, Danny Brown, and the book that we talk about the most in this interview is Actor Age, Eve Brown, which features two autistic characters who fall in love. Being a neurodivergent uh, person herself, Joss was very excited to talk to Talia Hibbert about her autistic characters. Talia Hibbert is an autistic Black writer who has an incredible range of neurodivergent characters across the board in her novels. And so I loved listening to her talk about that. 
One of the things that Joss and Talia talk about in this interview is for Eve, what it's like being an autistic black woman in the UK and how she was never diagnosed as you know a child. She's an adult who's trying to figure things out versus her love interest, who is an autistic white man who was diagnosed when he was younger. And so there's different dynamics there. And Talia Hibbert wanted to illustrate that both types of ways of figuring out things for yourself or or being diagnosed early are are valid. And she talks about that in this interview. I I just think about this interview so much, honestly, not just because I love Talia Hibbert, but because Joss and Talia have this great rapport and uh, just a wonderful conversation. So here is uh, Joss and Talia talking about actor age Eve Brown. So let's transition into talking about uh, your third book in the Brown Sisters series, Actor Age, Eve Brown. And uh, if you guys did not know, Eve Brown is so special to me uh, because it features two autistic characters. I want to I ask you, what was your approach to writing these two characters and the development of their relationship, I guess, compared to maybe how you would write a neurotypical or holistic character arc or relationship arc? Well, one reason why I was really excited to write two autistic characters in a romance is that I myself am autistic and in my experience, a lot of the deeper, more enduring or easier relationships I have are with other autistic people. I feel that we tend to gravitate towards each other and kind of be a safe haven in a social world where we're not always accepted or we don't always feel comfortable. And I think that's something really lovely that happens in real life. So I was excited to reflect it in a book. Um, And it was also really important to me that I have the opportunity to show that autistic people aren't the same because we're autistic and don't all fit into the, the typical stereotypes that mainstream media clings to a lot. Um, So that was fun, you know, to show that not only that even Jacob, two autistic characters, are individual people, but that because of that, they experience their autism in such wildly different ways. And, you know, there's countless other ways to experience it as well. Um, And as for kind of crafting their relationship arc, I really enjoyed the idea of them being so different that initially they just can't stand each other. Um, and you know that's always fun to to write in a romance enemies to lovers is one of my favorite tropes it's tricky but it's fun Um, but then at the same time I wanted to show from the moment they met that kind of instinctive understanding in certain aspects even when they didn't understand each other in other ways Um, so it was kind of a fine balance and it was a lot of fun walking that tightrope yeah, I think one of my favorite things about actor A. Eve Brown is, oh my gosh, this is a mild tangent, but I saw this graphic on Twitter that was like, if you're a Pisces, your romance trope is sunshine and grump. And I was like, it has my favorite romance trope too. And I think I think it's so cool, you know, that we can write uh, neurodivergent or autistic characters. I personally identify as neurodivergent uh, while also kind of incorporating these tropes that typically we only see neurotypical or holistic characters put in. So 
really just want to point that out. Um, And also this one scene in Eve Brown that seemed really, really pivotal to me and my own personal journey into, you know, exploring my own neurodivergence. Um, It's when Eve is looking on the internet for diagnostic criteria for an autism diagnosis uh, to see if the criteria match her traits. Um, And why was this scene particularly important for you to include? I think that, you know, there are so many different ways that people learn about themselves and come to realize that they are autistic. And especially when you get into other marginalizations, for example, Eve being a black woman, you know, for a long time, they didn't think that anyone other than men could be autistic um, because they just don't know how to spot neurodivergent traits in people who aren't you know, of the demographic that they prioritize. And at the same time, you know, black children are also underdiagnosed or completely missed for similar reasons. And so, you know, living at the intersection of those identities, a lot of black women or people of marginalized genders just don't ever get diagnosed and don't get the support that they need and often find themselves thinking that there's something wrong with them and not understanding why they can't do the things that other people can do. So I really wanted to show that some people always know or are caught early, but other people really have to figure it out for themselves and do the DIY thing, you know, Um, and also that people feel different ways about needing or not needing a diagnosis. And finally, that you don't have to kind of tick every perceived box and meet some imaginary uh, standard of what it means to be neurodivergent. Um, so just all those differences in the experience, I felt like Eve exploring in her own way really kind of summed that up. So our next clip is from later that year, and Sachi talked to Elizabeth Mickey Brina about her memoir, Speak Okinawa, uh, which uh, premiered during Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And like Sachi says in the introduction to that interview, um, she never really read a book that she so deeply connected to because it reflected a lot of her own personal experience. Uh, Elizabeth's mom is from Okinawa, and her dad is a white American man uh, who was in the military, and that's how he met her mother. And Sachi has a similar experience where her mom is from Japan, and her dad is a white American man who was in the military, and that's how he met her mom. And so they talk about that shared experience, and it, it's such a, a beautiful interview, and they have this frank discussion about what it feels like uh, for them to be in their shoes. Um, so here is a moment from their conversation uh, where they talk about that. One of the first questions that came to my mind when I knew we were sitting down today is that so much of your book is centered around your parents, especially your relationship with your mother. And so as I was reading this book, you can definitely see that distinct shift between the relationships and perceptions you had about your mother and father in the adult passages versus the childhood passages. There's there's this this contrast and this difference. What I'm curious about is how kind of those shifts took place because your book really shows the goalposts of then and now rather than, you know, the the journey of maybe how you've got there. And I think each each and every one of us in 
in my mind, the biracial community has this push and pull constantly, right? Of not feeling 100%, you know, one part or the other. The only thing, at least for me, that feels 100% is that I'm 100% biracial. And my even relationships with my family and, and especially my parents have changed and shifted over time. And I think that is so indicative of that biracial experience. So um, how did that kind of journey and maybe some shifts and turning points look like for you? Mm-hmm. It's still something I'm constantly grappling with. And I'm still coming to new insights, even even after like pouring it all out into this book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like I said before, yeah, I grew I grew up in the this white suburb and I I constantly looked to my father, like my father was the one who could guide me. My father was uh, the one who could um, teach me the way to be in this world. And my mother just seemed, you know, and this is coming from a child standpoint. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why can't you show me anything? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, um, why is it so difficult for you to navigate this world? And so Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I thought I thought of her as as weak, as someone who t- couldn't take care of me. But she was, con- you know, she was constantly taking care of me in in yeah, ways yeah. that I could, and yeah, in ways that I couldn't see uh, um, until <laughs> until, until you're older. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you look back and you're like, oh my goodness, wow. <laughs> um, how did how did you do all that without any recognition for it? Um, yeah. And, and, and she, and yet she still kept going and, and that's, and that's why I just admire her strength so much. And, and, and it was a lot of just growing up and, and seeing the dynamics, also the, the gender dynamics as well, understanding the more nuance of these systems, right? Colonialism, imperialism, um, racism, and, and seeing how that put my father and, and her, how she was just living in this family where her culture was not dominant. Uh, Yeah. And, and so that, that gave me much more like a sympathetic, generous view of, of what she had had to deal with, how much harder it was for, for her than my father and becoming a woman and being like, wow, like being a woman is really hard. Uh, Yes. And, 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 and seeing her in that way, just as not, as my mother, but as a woman who is dealing with all the, the misogyny, I mean, that, that, that's a system that came into play as well too. being a, mm-hmm. being a cocktail waitress at, you know, at a nightclub in Okinawa and serving these soldiers drinks. And, and that was one of the, um, one of the things you told me later in life, how she got paid a uh, dollar uh, for every drink she got a serviceman to buy for her. This is the dynamics of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, use, using her using her sexuality, right? Using mm-hmm. her just objectifying, having to objectify herself to make a living. And yeah, and so I, just understanding how all that was sort of coming together. Um, in my family, right, and, man- and manifesting in the in the dynamics of my family. And it really, that's what it is. It's just the, uh, you, you talk about turning points, but that's what was so hard to capture because it, it, it happened so subtly and so gradually and over mm-hmm. time. But one, one of them was definitely seeing my mother, uh, as a, so the inspiration for the book was co- going to my mother's baptism. Mm-hmm. And uh, she'd recently joined the, the Rochester Japanese Christian Congregation 
and um, it's a it's a church uh, that's the, all the members are are Japanese, mm-hmm. and almost all of them are women. Like I think there's like two me- Japanese men there, <laughs> and and, uh, um, and almost all of them are women. Almost all of them around my mother's age, mm-hmm. and all the women around my mother's age were married to white American men who served in the military. Yeah, and that was the first time I it kind of dawned on me like this is not. I'm not a totally isolated incident. My family is yeah. not. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> I had the same experience when, when my, so my dad was a chief in the Navy and every year they would have an annual Navy award ceremony for all the chiefs and officers and you would, they would bring their family members. And so my parents would go to the ceremony and then they have the, like this party at the end, all the kids would come down and they had dance floor and all the stuff. I walked into this conference room, this ballroom and almost, I, I'm definitely more than half, but like a shockingly large amount that even me as a child realized that almost every one of those Navy soldiers were married to Asian women. And you know, as a kid, you're just like, oh, well, everyone's got an Asian mom like me. And now as an adult, I say, wow, like that is a distinct pattern that arises from, you know, a lot of different factors that you lay out very well in one of the chapters of this book that we, you know, I have it in a later question. We could definitely talk about that as well. It is this shared experience and it does play to a lot of these different aspects of our history and our cultures. And it's no surprise either. I think my dad, um, as my parents are no longer together after they, um, split, my dad noted that a a lot of people, uh, who, um, he knows in the Navy that married, uh, you know, these, these women from overseas, they're not together anymore. And I think that's telling and, it just makes me realize a lot of different things about my family and then a lot of the military families that we had because I grew up on Navy bases for most of my life, that it is this kind of systemic type cycle um, that we live in. And it's it's something that isn't really talked about <laughs> a lot. And I felt very, it, it's kind of like whenever you're on the base and you're isolated to it, you feel like it's so normalized. And then when my dad got out of the military when I was in, you know, middle school and we moved back to a very predominantly white suburb, like like uh, you had mentioned, it, we're in Ohio, but... Close enough. That's- exactly. Right. You know, apples and oranges, right? I realized that that is not the norm and that's not really discussed. And, and my, my family was very different than all of the other families around me. So I, I totally, totally get and understand that as well. So our last clip is our mo- one of a more recent interview, and that's Joss's interview with Zakia Delila Harris. And in this interview, they discuss Zakia's novel, The Other Black Girl, which uh, is about a young black woman who works in publishing in a mostly white office, and uh, how that experience is like for her. Uh, Zakia also worked in publishing, and she was the only black person that worked in her office. And she imbues her characters with a lot of her experiences. And Joss and Zakia talk about that, how Zakia's experiences inform the characters, uh, but also some of the things that she wanted to also add. And Joss is such a great interviewer 
in that she is such a fun person to talk to and to listen to, and she has a great time with the guests, but she also delves into the meat of the books. And uh, no matter what genre she's working with, no matter what kind of book that she's working with, she's able to do that. And Zakia is so generous in sharing um, her experience writing this book and the things that she wanted to communicate. I really enjoyed listening to this interview uh, again, and here is part of Joss's conversation with Zakia Dalila Harris. Uh, speaking of which, uh, kind of just in the writing process, how did you navigate, I guess, that super meta aspect of, I guess, first working in publishing, now being a writer, being published, and then writing about working in publishing? How does that work for you? <laughs> it is, it is, um, it's so weird. Like, it's all just so weird um, <laughs> thinking about it, how meta it really is. Because, I mean, I had written this book before the year we had last year, too. And then when all of the things were happening of, you know, me trying to figure out how I was going to edit my book during like a world, <laughs> the world just combusting, um, watching the news, of course, seeing what happened to Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, and then trying to be creative. It reminded me a lot of Nella trying to, um, you know, process the news, this, the police shootings, and then go to work and, and show up with a smile. Um, and it, it was really interesting to, to navigate that and then have conversations about that. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping it's ultimately helpful <laughs> for me processing all of it. Um, and I also have a therapist, I should say now. So <laughs> really figuring that out too, because I'm, I'm not used to being a public person. Uh, that was not part of um, my plan necessarily, although I guess that is what comes from being an author, but it's not something I'd thought about as much. And now that I'm on the other side, it's, it is something I'm mindful of and want to make sure that I, I am taking care of myself. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I feel like we see this a lot in the book with Nella, you know, there's this frustration underneath maybe the entire thing where she's trying to show up and, and be the editorial assistant to Vera um, and all the authors there and being amenable and agreeable while also trying to make radical change in her workplace. And it really feels like such an uphill battle being a black editorial assistant in mostly white space. And that frustration is so palpable. Um, what are a few defining moments in the book that kind of encapsulate this for you? Oh, I mean, the one with, I won't give away too many spoilers, but the scene with Colin. Oh, yes. Um, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> in which, <laughs> for listeners, I'll just say Nella has to navigate, uh, and this happens pretty early on, um, Nella has to navigate a very uncomfortable conversation with uh, one of her white authors who has written a Black character that, for Nella, does not ring true. And she has to figure out how to tell them. Um, and her boss, uh, and, and this um, should say also, this author is like a best-selling, keeps the lights on author at the place where she works. So there are all of these stakes of her having to navigate that and feeling like she doesn't want to come off as the, you know, angry Black woman, the Black woman who's too sensitive. Um, but then also, wants to keep her integrity intact and doesn't want to be that black person that, you know, Twitter is decrying for letting this slip by. <laughs> um, so, so that's one moment. Um, and yeah, I mean, a couple other, in other instances happen throughout the book uh, that are not as blatant, that are more subtle um, microaggressions of, of having her name be uh, 
uh, gotten wrong um, or of you know, being mistaken for someone else. All of those things um, I feel like are, are the, these kind of um, little microaggressions and that actually build up and cause so much frustration and her trying to just be um, and be good at her job, um, but also wanting to speak up. And there's just a lot to balance there. Well, that brings us back to the present. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed going back through time and walking through these different interviews with me. Uh, There have been so many wonderful authors that we've talked to who've been so generous with their time. And I hope you have enjoyed listening to those interviews as much as we have enjoyed doing them. I'm so grateful for these conversations and for these books that are out in the world, for these women writers who are doing such wonderful things um, in literature. Uh, So please tell us your favorite interviews, uh, and I would love to hear about them. You can find us in all the places, of course. But yeah, it's, it's it's been so wonderful. So at the time of this recording, uh, we still have a few uh, author interviews to record and to publish, so those will be coming out soon. All right, that's our show. A many thanks to our wonderful, wonderful patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester. Our music is by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thank you all so, so much. For listening.